Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in partnership with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. In 1987, Chris Stowers ditches his dull job in the UK and embarks on a trip throughout the Asia-Pacific, following many other adventurers traveling with just a backpack and a minuscule budget in what he calls the golden age of travel. In his many adventures around the region, two particular stories stand out enough for Chris to turn into a book, Boogie Nights. The first is his encounter with an older German woman in the Himalayan mountains, with a penchant for flirtation and teasing. The second is a maritime journey from a remote Indonesian island to Singapore on a wooden sloop and a rowdy and raucous French crew. Chris Stowers is a photographer and reporter who has traveled to over 70 countries around the world. His work has appeared in publications like Newsweek, Forbes, and the New York Times. His journey on the sloop led to his first story and photos being published and began his career in photography. Today, Chris and I talk about his journey, both in Southeast Asia and the Himalayas, and this golden age of travel. So, Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about Boogie Nights. Um, Perhaps let's start with why you went on this journey in the first place. Why did you leave the UK and kind of what pushed you on this adventure? Thanks for inviting me, Nicholas, for a start. (laughs) It's great to be here. Um, It's a long time ago, 35 years. I was just thinking about it the other day. And and yet it seems like yesterday. Um, I was... Only actually, I have to remind myself, I was only 19, 20 years old at the time when I left home. So when you say, uh, like, a, I had a boring job, I was leaving. I was actually a motorcycle dispatch rider, which was quite an exciting but a dangerous and a dead end job. So I think that's what I was leaving. And uh, the economic depression of England at that time, um, the sort of certain conformity, uh, all my friends were settling into jobs up in the city in London, and, uh, and I come from England. Um, and I just felt something inside me felt like I don't want to go that way. Surely there's there's something more in life. And uh, in fact, my father had been born in Africa, and, and his father had been born in Africa before him. Uh, they were English, but uh, due to um, Rhodesia, uh, Zimbabwe now being part of the British Empire, they they lived there as British citizens. And I had heard all these stories my grandmother used to tell me, and I thought there's a big world out there. I I, I think I want to see it before getting a proper job and so I sold my motorbike and I bought a one-way ticket to I said it was to Karachi in Pakistan and set off from there um, and adventures followed 
that's the that's the short that's a short story for how I got away. So, why did you kind of split your book into these two different threads, and and the book kind of jumps from from one to the other? The first is kind of this this trip in Tibet and Chengdu. And then the other bit is this kind of maritime voyage to Singapore. But why did you kind of structure your book in this way? Yes, I, I was wondering how it would work, actually. Um, in my mind, I remember these two particular treks. And I consider the sea as a wilderness just as, the same as the Tibetan highlands as a wilderness. It's just one you have to swim in if you fall off the boat. Um, and both of them took about a month uh, to accomplish, and both of them had certain similarities to them in terms of hardships encountered, and the solitude and the thoughts that go through your mind when you're when you're pushing your body a little bit to the limit. And uh, so, I thought there must be a way of combining these two stories. And uh, and fortunately, uh, and to this day, I've always kept a diary. I have 151 volumes of it back at my parents' house in England, and um, I was able to mine the earlier volumes of these diaries um, for uh, very good, very useful information. So pretty much everything in these books, and they are narrative nonfiction, but um, 99% exactly as they happened. Um, I had this information, this well of information I was able to uh, dive into. And the more I looked into them, the more I thought I could uh, intertwine the stories. And they sort of, they kind of, mirror each other in certain ways certain uh certain uh tribulations and trials that that were encountered are familiar on the like when i'm traveling through tibet at one point the the the, the truck i'm on uh crashes and when we're on the boat there's a storm and i've tried to put these two high points at at, 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 that's you know intertwining with each other at that same section of the of the finished book so eventually they, they actually join up and they join up in the the person of uh, uh, Claudia, who's the uh, German uh, love interest, you could say, that uh, you mentioned earlier on. Uh, and also um, a very interesting Frenchman called Charlie, who was present both in the Tibetan story and in the, uh, in the Indonesian section of the story. He's one of these chance encounters, um, these strange people that you meet at certain points in your life and they just change your fate. Uh, so I thought, no, I have to combine the two stories. But the emphasis, obviously, from the title of the book and the photographs in the book and the way that, that the boat voyage actually um, did lead to my career as a photographer, that's the, the main uh, story told. Let's talk about that, that boat journey. And let's talk about the boat that you took. It's, 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 it's a paraha. It's a, it's a sloop. Um, so a very small boat. Um, but what's the history behind these boats kind of in Indonesia? And I guess how big was the boat that, that you were traveling on? Yeah, well, in my research for the book, I actually unearthed some um, video footage that we took at the time. Um, very rare, very shaky and very faded. Uh, and it really it surprised me how big the boat was when you see ourselves on, aboard it on the deck. It was 70 feet long. 23 meters with a mast that was 60 feet high it weighed 60 tons without any ballast it was made entirely of teak wood with no 
um, metal bolt or bracket or nail in its construction. It's, it's really a, a, almost a lost part. It's one of the last boats made this way with no engine. Um, uh, the sails were <laughs> made from plastic rice sacks, unfortunately, which weren't very durable. Um, that's a concession to the modern age. Um, but in, in many ways, this boat had not changed in design from the 15th century caravels that the Portuguese used to explore the African coastline with. And in fact, their, their, their aim at that time was to find this mysterious spice islands, which actually we know today as Indonesia. So these, these, it was a very traditional boat with a shallow draft, so it could sail in very uh, close to the coast or up um, shallow rivers without grounding. Um, and it just had a, a wooden tiller to pull the rudder around, left or right, and it took six of, six of us to pull up the main sail, just like in these uh, you know sailing adventures from the 17th century. You see all the crew hauling up the sail. Well, you needed that many crew to haul the sails up. They're very very heavy, especially when they're wet. So um, that was our boat. It was called the Konya Elahi, which in the local dialect translates roughly to the God bless which I thought was the perfect name for our voyage because, um, not to give the game away, only one of us had actually sailed before, fortunately the captain, and there were seven of us on board. Um, that's, yeah, the, the, these boats were used. Actually, there's a very interesting story behind these boats. So, um, the, the trade winds in Indonesia blow from the east to the west, especially in September to October. So historically, for hundreds of years, um, what's known as the mosquito fleet of Bugi Prahu, these sloops, which are single-masted boats, or uh, Pinisi, which are schooners with two masts, a bit bigger, maybe 100 feet long. Um, they would load themselves up with you know, exotic produce from the Indonesian interior, things like birds of paradise feathers, beeswax, bird's nests, gold dust, tortoiseshell, sandalwood, you name it, coffee, cotton, sarong. And they would um, ship it into Singapore in fleets of 250 boats or more uh, up until the 1960s. So that must have been quite a sight. And the boats would not have changed in in the manufacture and appearance in that time. In that way, we were one of the very last boats probably to ever have done this, especially without an engine. Um, and th- those boats were operated by the Boogie, the mysterious title of this, of this book. Um, the Boogie people are... <clears throat> Um, famed as pirates um, and traders. The pirate uh, sort of uh, moniker is, uh, I think, fairly earned because uh, during the 17th and 18th centuries, the the boogie sailors would terrorise the fleets of the British East India Company and the Dutch East India Company, so much so that the sailors would go back and scare their children with stories of the bogeyman. (laughs) That's actually the origin of the the, uh, name of the bogeyman. They're the boogie people. Uh, so these chaps, they're much nicer these days. <laughs> they're not so threatening. Uh, Muslim people living on an island or several islands in, in the East Indian Ocean, the Flores Sea, between South Sulawesi and uh, Flores. So it's about 2,000, just under 2,000 miles from there to Singapore. Um, and this is their traditional kind of boat. I hope that answers that question. <laughs> so... Your sail, I mean, you sail with, you know, a very strange group of characters, um, mm. <laughs> to put it to put it mildly. <laughs> um, you can get, really, when you're out in the wilds like that. <laughs> well, I mean, but, but I guess, who like, who were these people? Who 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 was this kind of array of 
mostly French, but not entirely French, um, people who decided to, to go on this voyage. Well, okay, uh, I don't speak French, so very luckily, the, the, the character I mentioned earlier on, one of the crossover characters from the Tibetan story to the to, to the Indonesian story was this guy, Charlie, who I met on the, but just by chance, on the same day, on the same plane from Australia, from Darwin, flying into Timor. I said, oh, Charlie, really? okay. So we started traveling together, and he and I, at the end of a long day's travel, bumped into uh, three of the French crew having coffee, of course, and smoking cigarettes in a, in a warong, like a little cheap cafe in Malmere in Florence. And um, they started talking in French, and then for my benefit in English. And, uh, and so without Charlie, I wouldn't have actually met these the, the, the crew Charlie in the end did not join us for the voyage but uh, I was well in with the crew by then um, there was Pascal who was 28 years old he was the oldest of us and when you're 21 I was 21 at the time someone who's 28 seems quite old <laughs> and uh, mature and so you trust them with your life as you do um, but he had a terrible temper um, so most of or myself and most of the others were actually a little bit scared of him. It's a bit of a captain fly on the bounty situation. Um, there was Frank, who I'm still in touch with, actually. Um, he was actually one year younger than me, so he was the youngest of the crew, age 20. Uh, there was uh, Freddie, who I met on that night, the th- three I met on the first night. Freddie was actually from Switzerland, spoke French and English, and his Indonesian was actually not too bad, so he could do some sort of translation work for us. And they explained that they had been to the home island of the Boogie in the middle of the, the Florist Sea, found a suitable boat to purchase, and they had this mad idea to sail it back to France in time for the bicentennial of the uh, storming of the Bastille, which would have been 14th of July 1989. So they were giving themselves a, uh, just under a year to get back to France. And I thought, can, can they be really meaning to do this? It sounds a bit... Uh, Anyway, they'll go to Singapore first, and they'll sort it out from there. And I actually wanted to go to Singapore, so I thought, at least we can make it to Singapore. I don't know about carrying on to France, though. Um, but we had to wait then in Maramere for about three days or so for the rest of the crew to come from France with the rest of the money to complete the purchase of the boat. There was uh, Savier, who was sort of the counterbalance to Pascal. He was also 28. Savier and Pascal had travelled across the Sahara together they, they knew about adventure and each other and uh, they similar age um so they were the adults of the crew and then there was bruno who was a mountaineer um and uh, gilles gilles marie who had just been fired from his post at the french narcotics agency i think from you know uh, over abusing his situation to gain access to the product um and was there anybody else? There were seven of us all together anyway. Oh, me. Yeah. They needed me along because it took six people to raise the sail. And one person had to steer. And I just needed it. Honestly, like all adventures, same for the Tibetan adventure, I did it because it was the cheapest way to get from A to B. And, you know, I mean, what exactly was, was life on the boat like? Um, it seems like things broke all the time. Um, seems to have been the running theme. Uh, you know, I won't, I won't, I won't spoil necessarily how the voyage, like how, like whether, whether you get to your destination, although one can probably assume. The spoiler um, but, alert, I was alive to write about it. Yes. yes exactly. <laughs> In what condition? Um, I don't know. <laughs> um, but what exactly was, was kind of life on the boat like? Uh, okay. Oh my goodness. The island we were sailing from had 
to start with um, had very little to to stock up with. Uh, it was it had no postal service, no banks, no mains electricity, only only battery power stored in car batteries. Um, uh, uh, no toilet paper, nothing. So um, uh, we just bought up local products such as huge bananas, uh, local calabamudo, which are the young coconuts with a lot of juice inside them, um, because we realised uh, hydration was going to be an issue. Uh, we had well well water, which we pulled up bucket by bucket and filled a 250-litre barrel, lashed that to the mast. The mast still looked like the tree that it was... Uh, that it was fashioned from had notches on it and everything. So it was very, very. We could have been basically in a, in a different century, and you wouldn't know the difference. Um, we had to, I had to actually, uh, along with Bruno, load the the hold with uh, ballast because the boat looked very beautiful sitting out of the water like that, but it was very unstable. So to keep the boat, it's meant to lo- ride low in the water and let the waves wash over it. So we diligently took by sandpan two tons of of sand in rice sacks from the shore to the boat and still the boat was floating way out of the water it actually needed 20 tons to to bring it down uh and so we failed in that task consequently we had a beautiful boat but we we bobbed around so much in the waves it was actually quite dangerous um life on board we didn't actually have arguments which is amazing considering seven grown men in close confines without much food water tobacco coffee anything uh, i think we were just too tired and scared most of the time to even get angry um we had very 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 and you might get onto this later i'm not sure but very basic navigational equipment um we had my map as a tourist map of southeast asia and i was slightly surprised nobody else had thought to bring a map along um so it's lucky i had that we had a compass and uh, Pascal had bought this really flashy and expensive sextant, um, but then we found out later on he had the wrong uh, chronological charts. For they were for the northern hemisphere, and we were in just about in the southern hemisphere for most of our voyage, so they weren't much use. And and he made a thing of every day at noon standing on the burning deck and taking the sextant readings like a pirate captain. But it never really we never really knew where we were most of the time. It was dead reckoning. Uh, we learned to navigate by the stars. Some of the boogie sailors, the original crew, taught us, you know, to look for certain stars, one that will point to Surabaya, one that will point to Singapore. You know. uh, it's actually very useful it, on a clear night. And just kind of keep the mast to either side of a star and head for it and hope that you don't hit into any islands or anything in, in, in um, that get in the way. And we went for you know, the first five days or so. We're seeing nothing, no land, no aeroplanes. Nothing. We could have been the survivors of some biblical flood and the world had ended and we wouldn't have known. It was amazing. Um, and you mentioned uh, conditions. Well, very sparse. We had a cabin, <clears throat> but the cabin is not some luxury thing that you can imagine from looking at a yacht manual these days. It was uh, three feet high uh, without any windows, just, a, just like a shelter bolted onto, uh, not bolted, just uh, sort of constructed on the the top of the deck so we had a hard wood deck to sleep on and when you get up too soon you bang your back on the top of the deck or your head and we're covered with bruises and scars from from bashing into the roof of the cabin it was so low it was just somewhere to hide from the sun really and when you're crossing the equator slowly that's something that you appreciate having as a, a bit of shade um 
the water I mentioned turned very brackish towards the end of the voyage, but there was we had to ration it just for for drinking with. So showers we were taken from buckets of seawater. Uh, all the washing up of uh, any cutlery was done in seawater. Showers when it rained, you had a shower, basically. And we had three chickens. We bought the chickens because they didn't have many eggs in the market on the day that we left. We bought all those eggs, and then we bought the three chickens and some food for them. Um, I don't want to uh, you know, get any a- a- animal rights groups on to me, but not too many of the chickens were left by the time we arrived in Singapore. <laughs> and the French are pretty good at it. Oh, there's something about the French. They were all from this town in Normandy called Evreux. Uh, and I've since subsequently been there to visit Frank, and uh, it's a strange town. It's not near the sea at all. It's in the flatlands. Maybe a place where dreams can grow because there's nothing else to do there. And so they were all pretty close-knit crew, and they actually knew how to cook quite well too. So there was me worrying about, oh, no, the poor soul of our white chicken that we've just sacrificed, and they were already thinking of what sauces to make with it, with the remaining garlic and what have you. So the French and the English are quite quite different in that way <laughs> i found out so let's let's pivot to to your trip to to tibet um you know the region i think was very popular with backpackers i think chinese rules now have killed that a little a lot um but um but you know how was tibet then kind of different to um to Tibet now, I mean, like when when you were traveling, what was that? What was that travel like? Oh, I mean, I know you're going to go onto this later about the golden era, but for Tibet and China in general, the late eighties was an incredible opportunity to see a part of the world that had actually been cut off since the nineteen thirties. The you know, you have all these adventurers, people like uh, Peter Fleming, who travelled across China by camel in nineteen thirty six to get to India. And then after that, what did you have? The, 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 the Cultural Revolution, and Civil War before that, and <laughs> World War Two before that. And the whole region was, was totally cut off to, to even to Chinese people to go to. And the first time it really opened up was with this thawing of the Cold War and the uh, relations after Nixon went to America and things, uh, sorry, Nixon went to China with Kissinger and things slowly started to normalize. So by the mid-80s, you could travel to Tibet as a backpacker. There were still restrictions. I mean, the road that I took from Lhasa to Chengdu was actually officially off limits. Um, But if I hid myself in the back of a pilgrim truck that was leaving the town and the Tibetans in the truck sort of realized that that, that, that's what I was doing and they gathered around me to hide me from the eyes of the uh, Chinese uh, security guards on the border at the bridge leaving Lhasa and... It was early in the morning. They were sleepy. I got out and jumped off the truck and just carried on walking. And then you basically don't meet anyone. For, I, mean, I was hitchhiking in the backs of Jfang trucks for many days, gradually losing weight and <laughs> getting dysentery and what have you. you know, I mean, it's uh, not luxury travel by any means. So Tibet at that time was, if you were in Lhasa or some of a, a couple of the monasteries surrounding it, they were open. And uh, it was a wonderful time to be there. You could mix with the locals and chat and talk and no problems whatsoever. Um, I, I arrived there actually across the Qinghai Plateau from uh, Dunhuang, where they, you have the Buddhist, uh, the Buddhist um, caves. Um, and that, again, you could do it. There was nothing stopping you. It was just uh, 
painful public transport on in, in, in a uh, you know a rough coach kind of thing for about a day and a half two days um across a bland dry dusty desert if you want to do that then you could get to Lhasa. there was nothing stopping you um conditions are very very rough uh, however, you know, uh, as soon as you leave Lhasa, the, the, <laughs> um, I hope people haven't been eating. But if you, you know, the general toilet was found by smelling where it was, and oh, um, basically at the bottom of the drop would be a lot of uh, maggots being being cultivated in in the uh, mulch, and then that was used to fertilize the vegetables. So it's very agricultural, very rural. I remember the smell very well. <laughs> um, Everything was mud and dust. Today, I believe that road that I traveled on, which was just dirt and mud, is now a sort of a four-lane highway much of the way, um, which would really, I think, sort of destroy the feeling of being away from the rest of the world that I certainly had. You know, I'd never been that far removed from from my own kind of people, <laughs> Western faces. I didn't see, apart from Charlie, who I bumped into, I didn't see anyone for three weeks, over three weeks. Um, and I didn't speak much Chinese. I just spoke a little uh, and very little Tibetan. So that, uh, you didn't really need to speak much. People understood <laughs> you were here. We don't want you here. Let's, we'll be nice to you, but please do move on, that kind of thing. Uh, now, um, I guess you could pay to join a very expensive tour. I think visas are hard to get, um, but you can do it. If you've got a lot of money to spend, you could stay at the Holiday Inn Hotel in Lhasa uh, and have a boring, bland experience in a, a sort of a playground like a Disneyland, Disneyland Tibet. Um, the real Tibet's still there, I'm sure. If you get off that main road and go up a valley, you'll suddenly be back in the late 1980s again. I'm quite sure that still exists but you can't really get to it as easily as i did so i was very lucky they closed down after after like 1988 i think there was some sort of troubles in tibet and uh, that window that short window you know pico Aya was there didn't wasn't he, he wrote a book about uh, backpacking in asia and one of his uh, chapters was in tibet and i realized oh hey i, I was there maybe in the same month or the month before the month after him it was that window that was it and then it's gone again never been the same since <laughs> so you have to uh, what i'm trying to do with this book is to encourage younger gen a younger generation who's, who was my age then uh, who you know i was 20 so 20 any 20 year old today just take a leap of faith go for it because what you can do now might not be available in 30 years time or 10 years time um you know there's a particular thing that happens in 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 your book um where it's kind of like a reminder, like, oh, right, of course. Like, this is, this is pre, pre-email, pre-phones. Um, the idea that you can't easily find out where someone is. Um, and that came through when, um, when, when Claudia, was it, you, you go to the post office and you find a letter from Claudia. And at the, in the letter, she says, by the way, I photocopied this and sent this to every single major Asian capital because I have no idea where you're going to be. And that was the player where we were like, oh, of course, <laughs> of course. <laughs> like how, how would, how would you know where someone's going to be? Um, and so I guess kind of like, because you talk about, like, like, like this is, this is kind of the, still the world or it, it, it's kind of this, this strange point where like the world is globalizing. You can travel around the world, but it's still not quite um, 
as fully connected as it is today. Um, I wonder if I can just just talk about, you know, how people stay in touch with each other. How do these kind of informal networks, traditions and practices for these these travelers, how do they kind of arise and how do people stay in touch? That's um, that's a deep pool to dive into. Um, well, okay, you allude to that particular letter that, that cloud, it could still be out there somewhere in the, you know, Kuala Lumpur post office in some dusty uh, drawer somewhere. There was, there was a, and still is actually a system called Post Restant, uh, where post offices would hold letters for a couple of months. <clears throat> um, and it was a tradition for all of us, really, all of us traveling to po- go to the general post office, every town is the first thing you did, really. And, uh, to show them your passport or tell them your name and look through that relevant section of the of the drawer of letters that would would, would be presented to you often on the way you'd find oh hey, here's one from you know from charlie or from like in this case from claudia or other friends and you realize that either you know maybe they were coming into town because people have been sending letters to, to to them as well if you saw a letter that was addressed to them rather than from them to you. So you could sort of get an idea of who was around. Um, backpacker guest houses were also pretty good back then. Um, we didn't have the luxury of individual rooms. Everyone was all in the same dormitory together. And you tended to, well, okay, guidebooks. This was at a time when even Lonely Planet was only in its sort of second or third edition, and they didn't have many areas covered either. It was the infancy of Lonely Planet. So even to have a guidebook was something unusual. Um, usually you'd find somebody and then you'd photocopy <laughs> copious you know, maps and, of towns and where the guest, cheap guest houses are and keep them with you stapled together. Uh, and if you met someone in one guest house, you'd say, well, I'm going to be, uh, you know, in, I'll be in Beijing uh, in three weeks' time. I'll see you at this and this guest house if you're there. And you'd have this loose sort of association in in your mind of who who was where. Um, the absolute best way to get information, our our social media of the day, our Google of the day, was basically just interrogating a, a, a traveler who had just come into the guest house from the town you wanted to go to, or had crossed the border you were just about to cross, and find out what's the condition. Who do I have to bribe there? <laughs> what's um, what's the weather like? What guest house do I stay in? Um, so it was nice because people interacted. They didn't hide behind, you know, social media or bookings.com or something to protect them from having to deal with horrible, dirty humans. You just got into it. And, um, you know, the friends I met in those days, some of them are still my best friends now. I would really miss that at this age in my, at this stage in my life. I'm in my early fifties now. If, uh, I, I hadn't made those connections, you know, some of my best friends, I met in guest houses in Hong Kong, uh, in Indonesia. I'm still in touch with them because you have this habit of staying in touch as well. You know, you've, uh, <laughs> you've gone through all the hard stuff. You know? So I, I miss that a lot because I find people very insular. You have all the information in the world now. I have access to everything and people are just looking at mobile phones. Uh, so having a nice conversation. <laughs> well, you mentioned, I mean, you mentioned kind of like it's maybe, maybe kind of close off our conversation, uh, but you mentioned kind of one of the, the things you wanted to do with this book was to encourage younger people um, to kind of make the plunge, to kind of go traveling and to go traveling in this very unstructured, maybe unsanitized, I mean, in a positive way, um, manner. Um, but I guess, you know, and you, and you kind of hinted at this already, kind of like, is, is, is 
travel and it's been particularly kind of backpacking. Um, is it different now um, than, than it was in your time? And, you know, not, not to kind of devolve into like, oh, these kids today with their phones. Um, but, 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 but because is, is it different now just because the world is more connected, the world is more, um, is more globalized and integrated, but also in some way, some of the, uh, some of the old divisions are coming back. You know, we, we already talked about kind of China and the rules about going to Tibet, for example. Just oh, is backpacking uh, different? Cyclical, aren't they? Like that? Yeah. yeah. But just yeah. is it different now than it was during your time? At the base of it, no, because you can still, if you have the will, pick up, put everything you own into a backpack, and just go for it. If you really want to i would have to say however um (laughs) why bother in some ways because people can see what the rest of the world is like now when i set off traveling there was this amazing will to discover what the world was like all i knew was what the topography looked like in a reader's digest atlas of the world i could see the himalayas in my mind from a two-dimensional map with a red line running across it, a thin red line, which I then actually did travel along, and then I found out that it was not flat at all. It's 5,000-meter passes, and it took a long time, and there were landslides and trucks crashing and all this kind of stuff, but I had no idea. I wanted to bring that to life. Now, if you want to, you can go to that same road on Google Earth and see it from every single angle in real time. So in some ways, I'd have to say, well, what's the reason for that travel now possibly people leave for a different reason um and i wouldn't know what that reason is because when you're you have a very short uh, narrow window of opportunity when you're young you're either going to do this or you're not going to do this because you get sucked into a, a full-time a proper job not dispatch writing you get sucked into a career you get relationships all this stuff i wasn't burdened by that i'd left if, just before that kind of stuff would kick in and um, so I, I was completely free. If you allow yourself to, to wait a bit too long, thinking, oh, I need a bit more money before I set off, feel a bit more safe about it, it that, that might pass you by, and then you may never actually get away, or not in the way you wanted to. Uh, and and I, by that, I mean traveling alone as well, rather than going with your girlfriend on a holiday to Greece or something. Um, I think, yeah, probably the experiences people have will be in the same vein, but they will be different same 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 but different so you you can get away but but uh what you find might be different it might be disappointing in some ways uh, but then again maybe not uh if you're young you will see things in a different way uh, and people act to act towards you in a different way people want to help people who are young they forgive people who are young when you get older you get less of that sympathy <laughs> and understanding you have to you've already you're supposed to have sorted it out I, I haven't, but uh, I'm, I'm an odd one in that way. I'm still, in my mind, I'm still 20 years old, traveling around and backpacking. Um, <laughs> some adventures stay with you for life, I have to say. And these two adventures are ones that have stayed with me for life. I've, I told them enough times to my to my family and friends that eventually it was like, oh, just write them down, for God's sake. <laughs> so this in one, in one very basic way, that's why I did put them down onto onto paper there also is it's also the beginning of a series of books of my of my life and travels uh so you have to start at the beginning um and i would say that's the advice for every traveler really just start one step after the other take that first step and see where it leads well 
I think that's a great place to end our interview with Chris Stowers, author of Boogie Nights. Um, Chris, I actually have two final questions for you, which are, uh, first of all, where can people find your work? Not just this book, but, but all of your work. And number two, um, what's next for you? What do you think the next project might be? You already mentioned kind of you're your starting this, this like a series of books. Um, but kind of what, what, what do you think comes next? Okay, well, um, I'm not a great uh, social media person. Uh, that might have come out in this interview somehow. <laughs> but I do have a, a pretty good website that a friend of mine, uh, Sinatus, put together called uh, chrisstowers.com. And there, not only do you get links to the book and other books, I've done lots of photo books before, but not uh, word books, written proper books like this one. <laughs> um, and uh, my, my various uh, types of photography that I do. Um, if you just type in the name Boogie Nights now, B-U-G-I-S-N-I-G-H-T-S, it comes up first search on Amazon, which is quite nice. And you click on that and you can find out more about the book. Um, as for the next step, uh, well, I'm still a working photographer, so I have various, uh, various assignments I have to work on to pay the bills. Um, but in the back of my mind now, there's this, uh, especially since this book has been published, um, to get the next volume out, that's a, it's a priority. It's actually written. Uh, it just needs to be edited, knocked into shape, which takes some time. <laughs> I'm finding it's a very slow process, writing and then finally getting in to, into the hands of the reading public is, is a totally different ballgame. Um, and there'll be a volume three and possibly volume four, but maybe by the end of my life, we'll, we can come back and talk about that one. Um, but yeah, my next trip will be to uh, the UK. I need to go back to Europe and uh, do some shooting over there, see my agent, and uh, just keep on going, really, as I have been doing since uh, I started in photography back in 1989 after this, uh, <laughs> after the, the, my first story was published from the photographs I took on board the, uh, the Kone Alahi on, on the voyage. It's amazing how careers just get started. I still actually don't call it a career. It's just my life. It's just stuff, stuff I do. Uh, ongoing <laughs> well you can follow me Nicholas Gordon on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. that's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N you can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews essays interviews and excerpts follow on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia that's reviews plural and you can find many more off interviews at the New Books Network and NewBooksNetwork.com we're on our favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for a special anniversary episode with authors from the Boss Fight book series, works exploring the world of retro video games like Legend of Zelda, Majora's Mask, and Parappa the Rapper. But before then, Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Well, thanks very much, Nicholas. It's been an absolute pleasure to be here.